Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Route, the program where we gather every day at this time. Well, Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between food producers and food consumers. Back in the saddle here in the Great Plains of America after a fantastic week out west with uh, challenges in food production left and right. But Mark Lapke from McPherson County, Leola, South Dakota, which sounds like it's entirely too close to Craig Bieber for me, but that's okay. You do you, Mark. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Um, so we talk about the challenges this week. I've been really focused on the challenges of the federal lands rancher and many people struggle in understanding how that relates to those of us in the Great Plains or anywhere else in the United States, quite frankly, that utilizes private property to produce food. And that's exactly what you do in McPherson County, South Dakota. Would you give us this kind of a, a lay of the land of your farming and ranching operation? Well, we live in a in a pretty wonderful area right here. Um, we live down kind of on a flat, and right directly northwest to us, there's a, a, a coteau of hills. And down on the flat, we have some excellent agricultural farmable land. And up in the, that uh, coteau in the hills, we have some excellent uh, um, cattle grazing pastures. And, you know, like I've always said, there's better places in the world to raise cattle. There's sure better places in the world to to farm. But we have, uh, there's not much of it that's as close together as we have here. And so we run a diversified um, corn, soybean, wheat, alfalfa, you know, farming operation. And then we run a a, a fair-sized herd of uh, black Angus cattle. You, we, we call you fifth generation. Tell us about the first generation in McPherson County. Well, it's an interesting story. My uh, um, great-great-grandfather was a Civil War veteran, oh, and wow. he, he was a, uh, from a family in Gowanda, New York. And anyway, they had didn't have enough room left for him there. They ran a, a lumber mill, and so he had to come west to find something something better. He came out here by himself in 1882, and he got off of the train station in Frederick, South Dakota, which is about, you know, 25 miles to the east of us. He walked all the way over to where we presently are. In fact, he was the third homesteader in McPherson County, and the only two that were before him, there's there's none of those families left. So we've been here about as long as everyone. And he toughed it out all by himself out here walking into no man's land. And he found an area where we are and, and homesteaded it. And then he went back to New York in the uh, winter of 83, got his wife and children, and, and came back out here. And we've been here ever since. But I, I try to, Mark, I often try to put myself in the position of these pioneers who in 1882 you know, we're worried today about an electric grid that may fail. He had no idea what electric was. I mean, this is just a luxury in his mind. They are just so tough and so in tune with nature and dealt with harsh realities like we can't even begin to imagine. I love to just kind of try to vicariously live through what it must have been like in that time. Well, that's exactly it because, you know, he was about the, I'm right at about 42 years old and he was about the exact same age that I was when he came out here. And, you know, living the way we've lived, I can't imagine picking up where you're from, moving halfway across the country, you know, and they had previously come halfway across the world before that. 
into the great unknown. You know, this day and age, it would seem scary. But that generation, those people, they had guts. They had courage. And their complete, you know, um, motivation to do all that was to create a better life for them, for their family then, and to carry on a legacy and a tradition. And that's very important to me. And that's what we're still here doing. (laughs) I was thinking about my trip home this week. I came out of Salt Lake City, flew to Omaha, drove home. It's about a 12-hour journey when you take all that combined, which, by the way, I could have driven it just as quickly and made that mistake of flying. Won't do it again, Mark. But, you know, obviously you're one of the people I talked to on the phone. I talked to some, oh, my goodness, what a big day. What a hard day. You must be tired. Well, wait a minute. Your your great-great-grandfather had to go to New York. He didn't have a plane, a train, or an automobile. He might have rode a train at some point in time. It was a tough journey just to get from New York to Nebraska. Surviving that in itself was a major task. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, they didn't have the the comforts that we all, you know, um, take for granted a lot nowadays. And, you know, once he got out here, he was able to go back to Frederick and get a couple horses and and work for that. And an interesting old family story about that was, um, I think it was the winter of 83, one of the first, you know, years that he had his family. They were running low on coal to keep the, 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 the house, you know, warm. And so he took off with the horse and in the wagon and went to Frederick for a load of coal. And anyway, they uh, he came back because they didn't have weather. They couldn't look up on their cell phones what was going on. It was a nice day, so he took <laughs> they off. They look up. No, that's uh, what they did. Yeah. They look up. Well, what's the weather today? He made it to Frederick just fine, and then he came back home, and a blizzard come up, and he got lost. And oh. he uh, um, missed missed the farmstead by about three miles, he figured out the next day. But he got stranded with the horses. And, you know, just out in the middle of the wide open, and it was wide open prairie back then. We didn't have no trees. I can't imagine how the wind rolled right. through here. Then. And anyway, he had a bunch of um, gunny sacks full of coal. He dumped the coal out, wrapped the gunny sacks around the, the horse's legs to keep him warm, and just kept moving all night and stayed out in it all night and then headed back home when uh, um, the weather cleared the next morning. I can't imagine going through and something like that. No, that, that's, those are just incredible stories. And I'm glad your family's got all of that archived and you can repeat that so well because 10 generations from now, they need to know the same stories. Well, absolutely. And it kind of keeps your feet on the ground because you, you, you understand what everybody went through previously to you being able to take it over. And it gives you a deep appreciation for, for the farm, for the land, and especially your family. So, Mark, the reason that we came together is that uh, I'm a champion for property rights, and I believe that people need to understand that what made your grandfather successful, great-grandfather, your family for five generations, we'll just leave it at that, is the ability to take care of land as we see fit and the improvements that we have made in taking care of God's creation and then turning those into the essentials of life that improves mankind around the world. That is all put at risk when you have somebody who is well funded from unknown sources and some sources that we don't we know that we don't really care for obviously don't have domestic security first in mind but you happen to be in the path of the CO2 pipeline that is going through Iowa parts of Nebraska South Dakota to North Dakota even a little bit of Minnesota uh, kind of tell us wh- what's coming down the pike at you from that standpoint and what your take on it is and and 
what do we do to continue to bring this awareness to more people so that they understand this is not good for anybody and it's a violation of property rights? Well, that's exactly it. It's a, a property rights issue, first and foremost. I mean, you know, um, pipelines have always existed to transport a, a, a commodity or a product at a cheaper rate of transportation to a consumer, lowering their, their, their cost of living. You know, here we got a pipeline that's completely a waste pipeline, even though I don't consider the product a waste, but they are going to be dumping it in the, in the bottom of the earth forever. And what's really troubling about it, it's CO2. It's not like it's straight carbon. They're going to be sequestering twice as much, much oxygen as they are carbon. And I don't know how we're ever going to get that back. And if we allow something like this to take place, because what's so troubling about it is there is there is no consumer at the end. It, what is the business model? Um, the government's going to give them a, a huge volume of tax credits. They can get $85 a ton uh, tax credit for sequestering it, and they, they claim to have a capacity up to 19 million tons. And, well, they currently only have about 9 million tons committed to it, well, if that's the case, there's not enough uh, ethanol plants left out there to satisfy the rest of of that threshold. So what else are they going to be dumping into this? You know, that remains to be seen. But if they're so easily able to um, run us over and, and take away our, our, our property rights to do it, it's going to open the floodgates to absolutely everything. Eminent domain will no longer be for the public good because what is it intended for? Roads, highways you know, utilities, railroads, something that everybody can use. You know, the, the interstate's a very easy argument to make because everybody, you know, utilizes that in one way or another, be it, a, you know, transportation or every good that we purchase, you know, comes on a truck across them. Whereas here, how is this possibly going to benefit the general public? Mark Lepke, my guest, we are going to take a break and we will come back with more Trent on the Loose, getting to the nitty gritty of how eminent domain can just be so loosely purchased. I might use that word intentionally, purchased, when we continue with more Trent on the Loose after this. Thank you, Mark. We will take a break and come back and continue this discussion about the pipeline in, in greater detail. Mark Labke joining us from McPherson County, South Dakota. Before I let you go, I want to remind you that Protect the Harvest focuses on these kinds of challenges every single day. As I've just returned from the West, you can find at Protect the Harvest a detailed story about the changes in the proposed grazing rules for the Bureau of Land Management, how, how that will impact food production. We already know that we are at about 20% of the annual protein meals that should be produced on federal land. Get details about what that means. And it's not just a federal land issue. That's the biggest thing that I need to explain it. There are property rights in grazing federal lands. Those property rights are eroding just exactly. It's like they were the test ground for what we're talking about here today with Mark Lapke. Get details about how you can remain empowered and how a free and fed America matters at protecttheharvest.com. Back with more after this. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Trent Luce, Roll Route, Mark Lapke, joining us from McPherson County, South Dakota. Today, you know, I had hoped, I can't be everywhere, Mark. I wanted to be in McPherson County. I wanted to be in Brown County. I actually have some plans and some ideas. We'll talk about those later, but the time is now. And I want to just come back to what we were talking about. In case you're just joining us, we're talking about the 
Summit Carbon Solutions Pipeline. There's also a Navigator Pipeline, which I'm told, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm told near Cherokee, Iowa, there's going to be a valve where the two pipelines cross so that they can put CO2 from one to the other or whatever else is in the pipeline. I don't know if you knew about that or not, but uh, that's not, not the topic of the day. It should be gravely concerning to every single American that eminent domain, which is supposed to be for, as you very eloquently talked about, interstates and, and the public good, that we can have an entity, in this case, Summit Carbon Solutions, that can come in and basically buy corrupt officials to utilize eminent domain, which is clear in my mind all about monopolizing a, a commodity instead of actually doing something that's for the public good. I hope that everybody understands how drastic and how dire this truly is if they get away with it. And that's why you and I are, are committed to make sure they don't get away with it. Well, that's a, I, I completely agree with you because I was a large part of the effort down in Pierre. You know, we had the realization that this is all accumulated over so many of us not paying attention for so many years, generations, in fact, because we always kind of had the opinion, well, there's nothing I can do about it. So you just go about your daily business and, and live with the consequences. Well, we've come to the point that the consequences have become so severe and it was really an eye-opening experience because I, I, I thought there would be a better general understanding, you know, to, to stand up for these constitutional property rights. But there really seems to be a lack of concern. In fact, our Speaker of the House, this has gotten seared in my mind, made the statement during the uh, committee hearing on, on one of our, our particular bills that would have been the good one, that these companies need the power of eminent domain to hold over people's heads, to motivate them into negotiation negotiating otherwise nobody would talk to them and that just floors me because um good faith negotiations are now gone i mean it's not a negotiation it's a conquering and that just uh, is that how we're going to do business in south dakota that's not business that's exploitation well about 10 days ago the threat of eminent domain came out and the company um uh, sent out letters to over 200 people across the state saying that if you don't negotiate in 10 days we will exercise eminent domain well it wasn't specifically 10 days but yesterday the hammer dropped and um all the uh, lawsuits were filed across the state to utilize eminent domain for this project and i guess the one that i particularly know the most about is our, our county mcpherson county uh we're scheduled to get about 60 miles of this pipeline because we got the main line coming through and a feeder line coming through well right now they're looking at uh, um condemning 45 of those 60 miles that's 70 percent in one county that's enough to be 10 percent of the entire project and how can this possibly begin to make any sense? I even saw the letter that circulated last week, Mark, that originated from, I'm sure it was the McPherson County Sheriff, not the Brown County Sheriff. It was one of the two. You'll, you'll correct me. But I, I don't use the term corruption with elected officials lightly. If you read this letter and, and you see how the letter point blank says some things just need to be done in the dark without the public knowing them, from one official to another, uh, if that doesn't wake people up, I'm not sure what we do. Well, see, it's just a good reason why I, I, I had a wise man tell me that good economic development will take care of itself. The people will be accepting of it. They won't have a problem getting through if they act in good faith, 
it's a, a, a pleasant process for both parties. Here we don't have that. This company has never, you know, um, never operated with good intentions. And they use these uh, intimidation and heavy-handed tactics. And the case with our sheriff is just case in point. Uh, he was compromised by the company and kind of coerced into doing that. Um, you know, I, I don't know if he really understood what was going on. And it's just led to a, a lot of issues locally here. We don't want to, you know, fight amongst each other. We all get along quite well up here. But they are just in trying to tear our communities apart and put neighbor against neighbor and just stoke a bunch of infighting so that hopefully we falter. How bad is the infighting within the county? Not bad at all. Everybody, you know, understands you know, what's going on relatively well, even though this is all new to us, you know, everybody has communicated quite well because I've had it uh, mentioned to me, I, I don't know how many times, there's the sentiment in our community that this is probably the most united our community's been since probably World War II because there hasn't been locally, you know, as much of a, a um, contentious issue since then. And so people have really come together. There are many disappointments, and and I'm not I'm disappointed that you have a governor who is revered by people outside of the state that she's the governor of at a level that is not warranted. Her, her name is Christy Noem, for those that may not know, and she just completed an election where she was out showing up at every event she could possibly be and talking and giving lip service to property rights and South Dakota is about property rights and she is completely vacant, null and void and refuses to even address this issue, continually says, well, the Public Utilities Commission has to address it. No, you can you can have an opinion. You can take a stand. You can say that I am a champion for property rights. I will not allow some out-of-state, out-of-country investment to trample the property rights of the South Dakota landowners. I don't know how to send that message any louder, but in my mind, the only way we actually get her attention, and this quite frankly goes to the attention of Governor Burgum in North Dakota as well, because he's as invested in this as anybody, the people just need to get loud. And Mark, the one thing that you you said that just rings in my head, and it's like we can't ever be at this level, and I know it's right. You said, well, when this first started, we thought, well, there's nothing we can do about it. It's just going to happen. Yeah, there is something we can do about it. We can get loud. We can make sure that people are held accountable to the campaign promises that they give us. And until we seek justice for the citizens of this state, whatever state you may be from, we're not going to shut up. Well, exactly. You know, (laughs) I myself, you know, uh, enough's enough. We have to draw the line in in the sand somewhere, and I, I, I feel like that line has been drawn. And it would be, you know, great to have our governor come out and have our backs. Is there anything that she can particularly do? I don't know. But I do know that the same um, um, plight that we're faced with is what she's always talked about and felt very strongly about, and, you know, we're completely on the same page. And to have her come out and stand beside us, you know, on a, on an agreed issue, would would speak volumes. At the end of the day, that's what she can and should do. Absolutely. You know, at the end of the day, the buck stops with our governor. She's the, the leader of our state, and, and um, you know, she was elected by the people, and we need her to, to stand by the people. 
So, Mark, I'm very encouraged by the the unity, the camaraderie, so to speak, within McPherson County. I know the same thing is developing in other counties that are in the path. Uh, kind of in summary, give us your your outlook on what you see taking place, knowing that the, the heavy hand of eminent domain, the, the the wheels are in motion. But what's your outlook from here going forward? Well, there's a whole bunch, you know, um, we've exhausted our legislative efforts for this year. That was unfortunately a big failure and, and hard to um, to stomach. But um, it's more in the courts now for the time being. Um, we have survey lawsuits going on. Well, now we have this condemnation process starting. Um, and then we have the PUC hearing coming up in, in September. That's going to be a, a big hurdle that they have to cross. You know, there's over 400 interveners in, in those hearings, and that's by far the biggest number ever in the history of South Dakota. So there's a, a, a lot of concern and participation in that. And I guess it, it all remains to be seen. I know the, the, the common carrier aspect of this still remains to be settled. For some reason, the company will not ever um, fess up or or say who owns the CO2. And I guess wh- why is that a big secret? But I do know yesterday that the uh, summit did sign a contract with a uh, company out of uh, Japan and uh, Sweden, I believe, that they sold off uh, 193,000 tons of carbon credits to these companies. Wasn't well, there a company from the North Pole involved in that too? Well, it's like called the South Pole Group or something. Oh, the South Pole Group. Yeah, what yeah. the heck's that about? Well, it's some company out of Sweden. I don't even really know what they do. Isn't it all it, about confusion? Well, that's just it, smoke and mirrors. Yeah. You know, it's a shell game. Yeah, but if they're able to sell the carbon credits, it leads one to believe that they own the CO2. If they own the CO2, how can they be a common carrier? And it all brings me back to what I said from the beginning, and I continue to say they are monopolizing a valuable commodity called CO2, utilizing federal taxpayer dollars in the name of eminent domain to make it happen. And the final thing I want to share, as Mark just shared with us, why is there such a push to get eminent domain going when we have a process in place and the PUC is not even supposed to meet in South Dakota until September? Let it unfold. Why are you pushing now? I know why they're pushing now, because they're tired of people like Mark Lampke standing up saying, you're not going to do this on my watch. Take a break. We'll be back with more. Roll route. Mark Lampke after this. Welcome back, everyone. Trent Luce alongside on roll route, by the way, Mark Lampke joining us from McPherson County, South Dakota. So, uh I'm hoping, and I'll just, I mean, you kind of gave us this at, at the end there, Mark, but nobody's feeling like it's too late. I've given up. We just can't fight this anymore. No, everybody seems to be holding strong. You know, um, we all, you know, have realized that the, that the use of eminent domain could be coming at some time. So it's really not a surprise. It wasn't unexpected. It's always different once it becomes a reality instead of uh, just a simple threat. But, you know, there's there's a lot of emotion involved. You know, like I explained, you know, especially up in this area, we we really have a strong tie to the to the land yet. And um, we we really don't have a lot of absentee landowners in here. It's predominantly family farms. And that's what's mostly affected in the area. And this is really important to them. And and they're not going to give up easily. 
Let me uh, play devil's advocate as hard as it may be on this topic. Uh, Mark, it's not like they're taking your land. They're going to pay you a conservation easement. You're going to still be able to do all of those things you love to do. What difference does it make if they put a little pipeline through your place? Well, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation if it was an oil or a gas pipeline. You know, in this area, people would be quite accepting of that. We'd want to sit down and figure out how to get it done in the least invasive manner, no question. But there wouldn't be the resistance of it to this because here this is just tied to the Green New Deal. There's not a lot of acceptance of that in in, in this part of the country. But, you know, here it's not like they just put a, a pipeline under the ground and, and um you know, you can just go over top of it. You know, it really handcuffs your ability to do what you want to with your own private property going forward. You can't construct anything on top of that easement. You can't plant any trees on top of that easement. You know, and keep in mind, in that easement, they're also allowed to change the rules at some point without your approval. You sign off on that when you do that. And who's to say that, you know, if if a, a rupture or a bad accident happens and they decide that you can't even farm across they could do that too, and then what? What's the typical? And I, I'm hearing that there is no typical. That somebody maybe has uh, 80 acres. Some give up a whole conservation easement on a, a whole quarter. I heard one case where it was a half section. How does that all come together in your mind? Well, it comes together in their um, in their plan to divide and conquer. You know, I, I know up in North Dakota, a lot of the companies up there have gone to giving what they called, uh, I think it's preferred um, state status, or I, I forget the exact term. Whereas if something changes in one easement, it changes in all of them. Everybody's going to be treated equally. Everybody knows what's going on. It's transparent. It's up front. Whereas here, I haven't heard or seen any easement that's the same. So mm -hmm. everybody is different, and they tell you, well, you can negotiate that, which is fine. That's the way capitalism works is fine. But nobody knows where everybody else is at, and it leads to a lot of confusion and worry on people's parts because, you know, they come around telling you, well, 70% of your neighbors have signed. They said that already two years ago. You just as well, too. Well, but then you don't know about the specific details in that easement. And there are easements that, you know, some of the people, you know, got bamboozled on early on in the process that are blanket easements. It's clear across a quarter, the parcel, be it a quarter, a 40, an 80, a section, whatever, you know, unbeknownst to them. Well, now they have a non-exclusive easement that they could do anything they want to on top of. And there's no control over that. So it really boils down to they just keep it that way for a smoke and mirrors game so that nobody knows where anybody else is at, and it leads to confusion. I, I can't say this without making it sound like I don't have due diligence, but I've tried to start watching. I have a, the five hours of uh, depositions in front of the North Dakota Public Utilities Com uh, Commission last week, and uh, Brian Jordy is the attorney who is asking the questions, and there's a individual represented by summit by the name of Jimmy Powell. I can't imagine more evasive answers and, and more lack of uh, genuine cooperation in explaining the purpose, the plan, and why than you witness in that particular deposition. And, and to your point, 
if this is for the common good of everybody, what what is there to hide? Why is there anything to conceal in any of these documents, any any plan going forward, and yet evasiveness continues to be the modus operandi? Well, exactly. You know, that's been one of the problems from the get-go here. Um, you know, I've been to meetings with Summit. They've been to our county commission meetings many times. The story always changes. They're always dancing around things. Um, they'll tell you one thing one month, tell you a different thing the next. And what is the secret? You know, that's like I said um, earlier, I alluded to, you know, good eminent domain will take care of itself. But if they're not going to be transparent and tell you the truth and you pick up on it in their different messaging and the way they mischaracterize stuff, how are you supposed to believe anything they say? No, I mean, that at the end of the day is the deal. How do you believe anything they say? But the other troubling part of this, Mark, is that it is nonstop chatter in our part of the world. And I'm talking about particularly the northern half of the Great Great Plains. You do not need to go very far outside of our circle. And I'm going to include Iowa, Minnesota in our circle in this situation. If you were to talk to somebody from Colorado, if you were to talk to somebody from Texas, you talk to somebody from Alabama. They have no idea that this is even taking place. And for those, I don't, I don't have land involved, but I'm very, uh, I'm very much a kinship with anybody who has their property rights trampled upon. But if you're in Alabama or you're in Florida, you're in South Carolina, this affects you too, because it, I don't believe they're actually going to do what they say they're going to do. Take a 360 trillion tons of carbon and bury it in the earth so that it's sequestered forever. I don't believe that in a heartbeat. I believe they're acquiring a commodity that they plan to sell like they've already started to do this week. Regardless, if they, if they, if what was, they say they're going to do was true, this will cripple life because CO2 enables life without CO2 in the atmosphere. And in fact, there's data that shows that 600 parts per million, 6,000 parts per million during the dinosaur age was the parts per million of CO2. We now have 443 parts per million CO2, and people are worried about it being too much. The more CO2 you have, the more plant growth you have, the more plant growth you have, the more animals you have, the more animals you have, the higher level of life for people. It's called the cycle of life. And my point in all this big, long ramble is what does it take to get people in Denver, in Tucson? And in Charlotte, North Carolina, to understand what is happening in the Great Plains of America is going to put life in peril around the planet. It's a good question. That's been a tough nut to crack. And, you know, I've listened to your show since I was a little kid, Trent, and I've heard you talk about the disconnect that we have in this country between rural and urban so many times. And that is so prevalent here. You know, back in the at the turn of the, the century, when we turned to 1900, about 85% of the population was rural, living on farms. Currently, it's about a percent and a half. And so there's so few of us out here that get it at the end of the day. In the, in the cities and towns, you know, um, they think their food comes from the, the supermarket. And they legitimately believe that. And I I don't know how you, until you can cross that divide, and get the, the education and the information to them and realize what's coming. I don't know if they'll understand this uh, particular dilemma. You, you really had to go there, Mark, and say you've been listening to me since you were a little kid. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. I got away from <laughs> Only been doing this for 23 years. You said you're 42, so you were a little kid at 20. That's what you just said. Well, I remember driving around with my grandpa in the pickup, and he always uh, faithfully listened to KFYR, and uh, I remember you coming on, and I felt like a kid. <laughs> you know what? You just hit the nail on the head. We don't have enough little kids riding around with grandpa anymore. That's the true moral of the story. That's the God's honest truth. And I'm lucky to say my little guy still got both of his grandpas and he rides around with them. And uh, I, 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 I hope he grows up just like I did because I don't think I turned out too bad. Um, yeah, let's talk about that for a moment. What, what is the next, the sixth generation Lapke look like in McPherson County? I got a, a six-year-old son named Grady, and um, he's uh, fortunately he's a spitting in image of his mother. Yeah, and I've always I know that said, you know, <laughs> I says I don't care if he looks like you as long as he's got my mind, we'll we'll both be happy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wait a minute, how did that play for you? <laughs> Not well, you know, a couple nights on the couch, but I I got a pretty good wife. She she gets my humor. But uh, he's full of energy, loves running around on the farm, and um, likes going to school, you know, I, which I have trouble understanding. I never cared for school. But um, he is probably the, the real reason that I'm doing this. Because what's coming down the pike here, what we're dealing with is going to pale in comparison of what he could possibly deal with. You know, will he want to be a farmer and a rancher? I don't know. But I do know that I want to afford him the opportunity that was afforded to me. And if we can't maintain our property rights, our way of life is gone. I just wrote my column this week, Mark, and it talked about mousy tongue in China. And you can go and, and he modeled everything that he did, which ultimately led to the starvation of 70 million Chinese from 1968 to 1971, three years. And he modeled everything that he did after uh, Lenin in Russia. And both of them did the same thing. They removed land ownership. They made everybody peasants working for the state, taking care of the land. And it led to massive starvation in, bo in both countries. All you have to be is somewhat versed in history. And you can see the whole recipe for a disaster. Well, precisely. It's all about control. To control a populace, you have to control the food. To control the food, you have to control the land. Like you said, uh, the playbook was established a long time ago, and there's the information there. And if we don't learn from it, you're doomed to repeat it. Mark Lapke, my guest. We'll take a break. We'll be back with the last segment. Roll out right after this. Oh, that's widely interesting. Thank you, Mark. We will get back to Mark in a moment. But I just want to talk about that coal statement for a minute. His great-great-grandfather went to get a load of coal. We've been utilizing coal for a long time. It's just now that we've learned how to burn it, capture the energy produced from the coal, and generate electricity and make life better. That's what we need. That is reliability, a resource that's provided that we utilize, we capture the energy, and you get byproducts. Who thought about a significant percentage of the concrete comes from the coal ash that we capture as a byproduct of energy production? The folks at Lignite know these things, and the folks at Lignite want to educate you. Lignite Energy Council. Check out the human interest stories at I am Lignite. It's on the web at Lignite.com. 
Welcome back. Trent Luce alongside Mark Lapke joining us from McPherson County, Leola, South Dakota, up there in hinterland. Uh, let's just step aside for a minute and talk about the cattle business because Monday, Monday I'm kicking off with a whole bunch of new stuff, Mark. Monday is beef month. Normally I would say that isn't every month beef month. But I feel the need this this year in 2023 to go above and beyond whatever I can do uh, to make sure that people understand that cows are important to planet health and human health. And we know, anybody who's paying attention to the weather, knows that uh, your location, the northern Great Plains, parts of Nebraska, not the part I live in, parts of Nebraska, many areas of cattle country have had a pretty severe winter. How, how have you dealt with that, and what do you see around the neighborhood from a cattle standpoint? Yeah, we did have a really long, really cold winter. You know, we, we uh, got covered up with snow back about the 10th of November, and it stayed that way until about oh, about 10 days ago. So we had a good six months of winter, probably had close to over 100 in- inches of snow. Uh, um, I know ourselves, we don't start calving till about the 15th of April. So we're coming through it okay. It's a little bit muddy, but uh, the sun's out. It's drying up. The days have gotten longer. But I know the guys that were calving in February and March, boy, did they go through a lot of a lot of hell, quite frankly. And that was tough. Um, you, you hear a few stories uh, here and there of, you know, some some significant death loss, you know, in the calving operations. But uh, cattlemen are a, a rugged, tough bunch and very resilient to the, we'll pull through it. Your prognosis for the future of the beef business from your perspective in South Dakota, because we know that inventories are low. We know that uh, demand, quite frankly, if you look at true demand, not what they want you to believe, but true demand, People are eating beef um, in a way that they haven't eaten for some time. Now, we're still below cap per capita what we were, like, say, in the early 70s. But there seems to be, despite some inflationary activity at the retail level, if you can look kind of beyond the, the short-term hurdles, the beef business is a good place to be. Beef pl- business is an excellent place to be. Like I always say, if it didn't taste so good, it sure wouldn't be worth doing. And that's the leg up that we have in the in the uh, cattle business is we produce a superior product, best in the world, and it sells itself. And so hopefully, you know, um, we're able to uh, keep more people in the cattle business, though. That's probably one of my biggest concerns going forward is the, the, the lack of uh, young people wanting to come into it. There's a lot of old ranchers retiring and selling off, and there's not a lot of people left to replace them. We don't have enough 40-year-olds such as yourself that are excited about it. Is that a true story? Yeah. You know, there was significantly, you know, my, my, my father's right at 70, and there was a, a, a lot more of his generation involved with livestock. Once you start getting more into my generation, and especially the younger ones, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a lot of them have sold the, the, the cows off and, and gone to more straight farming, which I understand it's easy, you know, or a lot easier lots less less labor intensive did you want to give your email out in case somebody who's farming and wants to take you take you to task on how easy it is to be a farmer (laughs) (laughs) that's mark lapke at gmail.com send him an email today if you're sitting in your tractor planting corn as it's about to get hailed out all right go ahead don't worry i've learned that if you dish it out you got to take it yeah absolutely uh and i also want to spend just a moment talking about your structure because you know, I, here's one thing about the cattle business that I've never understood is that, and we've seen some 
really hot. If you're selling bulls this year, it's been a good year to be a bull, a bull seller because particularly heifer bulls are selling well, which indicates there's several heifers going to be kept back into the herd. Uh, I'm told that a lot of sales are averaging $2,500 per head more than the other bulls. And for those that are not in the cattle business, that simply means that they are the best expected deviation in terms of lower birth weights so that the calf, first calf heifers can have those calves easier. But uh, bull sales have been absolutely fantastic. And I never understood, Mark, the very puzzling. People would spend back in the day five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars for a bull that they would kick out with their commercial cows and then load up the calves and haul them to the sale barn. And it's like, how do you think you're ever going to capture what you just paid for in extra value of the bull in terms of the eating qualities, like i.e. marbling, tent, in our world is tenderness, whatever it may be, without retaining some value, some ownership to the end so that you are rewarded for the genetics that you put into place. You obviously and your family have understood that for quite some time because you've got that structure of ending of owning them until the harvest. Kind of walk us through the struggles with that and what you've learned and why you think that's a good thing. Assuming you do, because you still do it. Well, exactly. You know, we we start calving about the fifteenth of April. Uh, we usually wean about the fifteenth uh, of November. We background the cattle, you know, on the farm until oh about you know May June. And then we ship them off to a custom finishing yard, retain ownership, and, and you know, sell them to, to a packer at the end of the line. You know, um, one of the frustrating things, because you just hit on, you know, the, the high dollars a guy will spend on bulls without um, realizing what it can do for you. And it's always been frustrating to me that, you know, there's there's no way to differentiate yourself even, you know, once once the cattle are slaughtered. You know, a, an Angus will go in a box with a Hereford, with a Charlet, with, with every color under the sun. But what you can do is you're able to develop them and make them more efficient. To me, that's one of our biggest drivers. I'm always trying to make them more efficient. They're all going to end up in the same place, but if you can get them there the quickest and the cheapest, you're going to be light years ahead. And that's how it helps me to uh, decide what type of genetics I need to complement that. So you evaluate that efficiency through feed efficiency in the feed yard combined with growth rate, or what are your parameters that you look at to to measure that? My biggest current factor that I look at is the efficiency of um, um, pounds of dry matter per pound of gain, and that you know a, a, a good ratio there is you're looking at about six to one. An excellent one, the best there are, is about five to one, and we usually can hit about five point four to one. So then you make do I, I'm gonna restate this question. Uh, so then, do you make the assumption that if the steer counterparts in the feed yard did well in feed efficiency, that the heifer mates that you retain back in the herd are going to be more efficient in grass consumption? Because that's something we've largely not been able to evaluate. And and I mean that cow and what she eats and how many pounds she produces for what she eats is really make it or break it in the cow calf sector. Well, exactly. And, you know, that's one thing. Uh, the mama cow is the most important thing at the end of the, na- the day. 
And, you know, I, I source my cattle with that cow because you got to live with her. She's going to make and break you. I don't live and die by the feed results. And, you know, so one of the areas that I have run into a little bit of, of a problem is my yield grading is, you know, a little bit higher than I would like it to see. But there's a correlation between yield grading and easy fleshing cattle. Mm-hmm. So it's always a balance. You never want to go to the extreme on any given trait. But, you know, if you're going to have easy doing, easy fleshing cattle, which we need to survive up in this northern climate, it's going to lead to a little bit higher yield score. And so you just have to kind of find a, an acceptable area. I, I mean, I can't complete this conversation without asking, have you considered coming to the brighter side and using the Piedmontese bulls through your system? <laughs> That's like arguing Ford and John Deere, you know. <laughs> <laughs> not really Ford one of them you get part. paid well for the other one you don't get paid enough <laughs> uh there's several folks in your country that do do that uh what's your main crop other than for life other than livestock predominantly corn we're probably um corn is probably our our primary you know grain crop and we utilize most of that as feed for our livestock you know it's it's the most diverse use for ourselves and then, you know, we'll, we'll throw a few soybeans in and then we still plant a little wheat yet. And really it's mainly for the straw for the livestock operation. Sure. And then, uh, we produce quite a bit of, uh, alfalfa hay too. We put all of our own feed up. Were you, I mean, being so young and all, um, sunflower, first time I made a trip to South Dakota, it was just such a sunflower mecca. Now we've replaced that primarily with soybeans. Because South Dakota now outpaces Ohio, it used to be a soybean, uh, a high producing soybean state, not the highest, but sunflowers are not what they used to be. Did, did you ever grow sunflowers? No, we never did uh, um, uh, grow sunflowers. We had a, a lot of neighbors that did. My father-in-law grew a, a lot of them, but it seems like the the, the primary sunflower areas you got to get up northwest of us, a ways up into the Hazelton, you know, Strasburg kind of area, southeast of Bismarck. Yeah. We're in the final two minutes, Mark. Let's come back. Um, any final thoughts on standing up for property rights and what you're suggesting to people is outside of your immediate area and, and, and the area that's affected by the CO2 pipeline? What's your words of wisdom? Communication. Nobody's going to learn anything by not talking to somebody about it. Tell people that, you know, um, you know, because this is just, this, this isn't just particularly about this CO2 line. It's about the property rights. If they're able to find a way to force this one through, that's going to open the gateway to eminent domain being used for solar panels, for windmills. Um, there's more carbon pipelines right behind this. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Heck, there's even talk about a, a hydrogen pipeline wanting to come through at some some point. And does anybody remember the Hindenburg? And it's with this whole uh, Green New Deal and the 30 by 30 agenda and them wanting to take everything away. Well, the people got to rise up and say, you know what, this is ours. This was granted to us by the, the powers of the Constitution. And people just, I, I think they really need to pay attention to this one because if they're so easily able to remove those property rights from us, which one's next? This is just a canary in the coal mine, seeing what we can get away with and how we can sur- how the government can survive without dying because Mark Lapke just nailed it. This a whole conversation can be summarized in one sentence. It's not about the CO2 pipeline. It's about the erosion of property rights. Are you going to be a part of the solution or just stand by and say, well, it's not my ox being gored. 
Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it and look forward to seeing you. Thank you. We've successfully journeyed down the road connecting Roland Urban. For Mark, I'm Trent. Both of us reminding you that all roads do lead to a roll route. I love the comment about uh, different colors of paint, whether it's Piedmontese, Angus, Hereford, Charlet, Limousine, Slayer, you name it. <laughs> hey, I want to tell you about Piedmontese, though. It's about a tender beef eating experience. Back in the day when we were raising Limousine, we should have focused on this myostatin gene. We should have captured this tenderness aspect, which we could have done. We didn't. But the folks behind the scenes of Piedmontese knew the power of tenderness in a consumer trait and have brought it to the forefront. That's why in today's era of high scrutiny in the beef business, a consistent eating experience comes from tender beef. Certified Piedmontese provides the opportunity. Now, here, go to the plethora of protein, certifiedpiedmontese.com, and you will find that you can not only access Piedmontese beef, there's other types of beef available there and other meat supplies. It's That's why I call it the Protein Plethora. Get details about it at CertifiedPiedmontese.com. You can order today.